Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I pray that you would move through the ministry of your word here today to shape us, to have your way with us, to conform us to the image of your son. Uh, Lord, I pray that hearing of him would be our craving and our longing as a church. And I pray that here today as we hear of your son, O oh Father, that you would magnify him in our hearts and draw us to savor and to treasure him above all things in the earth. We ask for your blessing upon those who have gathered here today. For those who could not make it, who are watching online, and those who will watch later, Lord, we uh, pray for your blessings upon them. Bless us, strengthen us, have your way with us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the title of my message today is Bread and Butter. Bread and Butter. Uh, it's a play on the idiom bread and butter that we have in our culture that we use to talk about sort of basic sustenance or livelihood. If you say that something that's, that's bread and butter, it's basic. It's, it's, it's a, an idiom that historians think go back to the Middle Ages in Europe where uh, commoners ate bread and butter as a part of their sustenance. If you, if you didn't have money, that was sort of the, the rice of European culture. That's what you ate. That's how you filled up your belly. That's how you kept going. And so that is carried along with us today as, a, as an idiom that we have, you know, that, that something is the bread and butter. It's something that's, uh, that's daily, that's regular, that you need. It's something that's relied upon uh, for basic food. And today I want to talk to you about a basic food that we have in the Christian life. Quite literally, it is a basic uh, food. It, it, and, and, and so I'm going to be talking to you about that food. And I'm going to be talking to you about these basics, a kind of spiritual bread and butter that we have as a local church, really as a part of the body of Christ around the world. Last week was a very special Sunday. If, if you were here, you, you know immediately what I'm talking about. Last week we had approximately somewhere around here a, a big trough, a big pool of water, and we were able to have baptisms. Uh, quite historic for us. We have a baptismal inside of the building, uh, and, and in the providence of God, here we are, and we're gathering outside, and uh, through other churches and friends, we were able to acquire a, an outdoor baptismal, and we were able to see a handful of people come forward and testify of Christ and get into the baptismal waters. It was a beautiful Sunday, uh, one that I will no doubt uh, treasure as a highlight in pastoral ministry when we were able to be out here and to see God move and to see a baptism outside. It was incredible. Now, baptism is a, is a butter, if you will. And today I want to talk to you about a bread. These two things, uh, bread and butter for us, spiritually speaking, one of them is baptism, and the other is communion. It seemed fitting on the heels of having a, a service of baptism that this Lord's Day we would focus on this other uh, piece of our spiritual bread and butter, which is communion. And hopefully when you came in this morning, and if you didn't, you, you have some time, but make sure that you mosey over there in approximately a half hour or so. We have a table over there and a table over there with communion cups, uh, with a little bread and a little juice in it. And I want to talk to you this Lord's Day about the meaning of this. If you have your outlines, you'll see at the top of the outline, I have the word ordinance at the top. The ordinances, the outline says, are, are a big deal to us. These are our bread and butter. These are basic. These are so important to us. They are commanded by God. In fact, that is what the word ordinance means. It's something that is commanded, something that is ordained, something that is ordered by God. And this morning, it is, it is my honor to be able to stand before you and explain what God has ordained for us and why it is special to us. So communion, uh, communion, it's an ordinance. Uh, some will refer to it as sacraments. I'll say something about that uh, in a moment, but uh, we just call it an ordinance because it's that which has been ordained by God, ordered by God. It involves eating and drinking. It is a kind of a meal that, or rather it involves sort of elements of a historic meal that we'll talk about today that we are called to incorporate into our corporate gathering. Jesus told his followers when they're gathered that they are to do this. He ordered it. He ordained this ordinance. Uh, what is this meal? What is this thing that we call communion? 
also referred to as the Lord's Supper inside of scriptures. Some of you, depending on what tradition you grew up in, you might even know it as Mass, which comes from the Latin ending of the Roman rite, it missa est, you are dismissed, Mass, dismissal. Or you might know it by the phrase Eucharist. Eucharist is derived from a Greek term that simply means to give thanks. And we see this Greek term uh, eucharistasis inside of Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11. So Eucharist is a, is a biblical uh, term that we might speak of, to give thanks. It is a meal that is found inside of, of the Bible, a, a thanksgiving meal inside of the Bible. It is also referred to in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 as the breaking of bread. It is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 as simply communion. It is referred in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21 as the table of the Lord. It refers to the night when Jesus got together with his disciples and they had a meal. We, we are not too far removed from Good Friday and Easter where we looked at this great text and we unpacked it in our Good Friday service. And so you might be reminded afresh of, of some of the things that we talked about in Good Friday, this, this meal that Jesus had, this Last Supper, a meal with the Messiah, a meal that became the bread and butter of his followers some 2,000 years later. This is essential for our worship. In the sermon today, I want to unpack the meaning of this meal with the Messiah. It is important to, to uh, the pastors in this church that our congregation as a whole understands this sacred meal and looks forward to it and, 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 and is able to articulate its importance. And so I like to, every year or so, make sure that I give a specific teaching on the topic and for 2021 uh, this weekend, that's what I wanted to do. On the heels of having baptism, it's fitting that we talk about our bread and our butter, our ordinances. We don't want a, a church like the one that I was raised in, where a lot of things were taken for granted. Perhaps you were raised in a church like that, and you just sort of go through the motions, and you, you know, the, we stand up, we sing, we say amen, and so on and so forth. But most people don't even know what the word amen means, and they don't know what these songs mean, or why we do what we do. And so that's important for us as pastors and church leaders, that our people know when we gather what we are doing and why we are doing it. That is so important for you to understand the what and the why. To be able to ask questions, well, why do we believe that or why do we do that? And to know that there are answers for those things. Uh, in far too many congregations, there is the saying that you check your brains at the door when you come. May that never be the case with regard to Delray Church. We want you to not check your brains at the door. We want you to put your thinking caps on and be ready to understand the whys and the whats of our faith. So last week we saw a baptism and I labored to stand before you before we did any baptizing uh, to make sure that our people understood what are we doing getting into the water? I want everyone who's watching to understand that. And so I labored to teach that and here today I want to uh, teach and talk to you about communion. What is it that we are doing? There's, a, there's an old story about a, a newly wedded couple and uh, the, the, it, it was their, their first year of marriage and their first Thanksgiving rolls around and they're so excited as you are when you're newly married and everything is new and, and, and the wife is so excited. It's her first Thanksgiving. She's been looking forward to preparing the Thanksgiving meal and in-laws and everyone are coming over and and she's in the kitchen and she's doing her thing and she's getting the turkey ready that morning to, to cook the turkey so it's ready on time and her husband's kind of watching her. And you know when you get married, families do things differently and so maybe you guys put marshmallows on, on your yams and maybe you don't. Uh, that can be sensitive for some people. They don't do the marshmallows, they do. Uh, maybe you're more of a ham person or you're more of a turkey person or whatever and you you come together in marriage and you see people do things differently so the husband's watching his you know newly wedded wife and she gets this turkey and all washed up and buttered up and she puts it inside of the tray to put inside of the oven and she takes a big knife and she hacks the front of it off and the husband's like what are you doing she, she goes well that's what we do in our family we cut we just cut the front of it off we cut like a big chunk of it off and you know, and, and, and then we put it inside of the oven. He's like, you're, you're wasting a lot of, uh, you know, delicious uh, turkey flesh there. <laughs> what are you doing? He goes, I, I don't know. That's just how we do it. So she just saws out the front 
and she stuffs that thing in, and later on, you know, the in-laws start coming, and, and so, so, you know, the, the husband wants to inquire, and so he asks his wife's mom, hey, wh- why, do you, why do you guys cut the front of the turkey off? And, you know, and, sh- and, sh- and the, his mother-in-law says, well, I, I don't know, that's just what my mom did, you know? And so the story goes on that later the grandma showed up at the house, and so they asked grandma, like, why, why, did you, why do you guys cut the front of the turkey off? Like, what's up with that? And the grandma says, oh, well, when we first got married, we didn't have a lot of money, and stoves were smaller back then, so we just had this small tray, and we could never fit a turkey in it, so we just cut the front off of it, and then we'd use the turkey for, you know, making, uh, making other stuff or whatever, the front of it. We'd cook that in a pan or something. We just didn't have space in it. So here's this tradition that's been passed on, right, that was all based around not having a big enough tray or a big enough oven, and you cut the front of it, and now you've got the next generation that are continuing this mindlessly, not knowing why, or even at that point, they don't have to do that because they have big enough trays and big enough ovens to be able to pop the whole bird in there and get it done. Wrap some bacon on it, stuff some stuffing in it, and call it a day. So too, with regard to communion, I I don't want people to be going, you know, why do we do this? Like, what's the deal? And you sip the cup and you eat the little bread every Sunday and you just kind of have no idea what's going on and you're going through the motions. It is our concern that our people deeply understand and appreciate what it is that we are doing when we gather on Lord's Day and we observe this ordinance Now, speaking of turkeys and Thanksgiving and meals and stuff like that, uh, let me begin this lesson today. I'm going to give you some, uh, an alliteration, a series of points to help you to remember what it is that communion is. And the first of these is ritual. Communion is a ritual. A ritual is a religious or solemn ceremony that just involves actions that are performed in a prescribed order. Communion was a very special and spiritually significant ritual for the first disciples of Jesus in the first century that is passed down to us 2,000 years later. Within the New Testament, there are a number of references and allusions to to communion, to the Lord's Supper, to the Eucharist. You can read about in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, we're going to be in Mark 14 this morning, so if you would turn in your Bibles and find your way to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. In Mark 14, we're going to see Jesus offering this ordinance. He's not just offering it, but he's commanding its practice. This is a non-negotiable for the church. This is an essential. In 2020, that word essential and non-essential, of course, is is one that we perhaps have even grown tired of hearing, where uh, people are making decisions about what is essential and what is not essential. Well, communion is something that is essential to us. It's, it's not a negotiable for us. It's not something that we go without. It's something that we do as often as we gather in obedience to the command of the Lord, as we will see. It, it, we are commanded together to partake in this. It's not just a command, but it's also a gift, and I hope you'll see the gift of it here today and see the importance of this ritual. Let's explore the sacred meaning of this ritual, and we'll do so in just a moment in Mark chapter 14. Uh, before we get into Mark 14, and I have this word ritual before you, I think it's important to make a distinction between ritualism and ritual. In our culture, uh, you know, some people might hear ritual and think that's a bad thing. Uh, analogously, people think the word religion is a bad thing, and so you'll often hear people say things like, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And it's, you know, it's a, a distinction without a difference, really, when you ask them, well, what, what are the differences? What do you see there or whatever? But so, too, a ritual is a fine thing. Religion is a fine thing, rightly understood. Ritualism we want to avoid. Tradition is a fine thing, but traditionalism, if we want to use it in a specific sense, is something that, you know, we want to avoid. We want to avoid blind traditionalism, where people are doing stuff at church and they don't understand what it means and where it came from. With regard to traditionalism, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a noted professor, history of uh, emeritus at Yale University, he was one of the foremost scholars of uh, the history of Christianity and medieval intellectual history. He's written over 30 books, and he has this line in, in, in one of his writings where he says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is the living faith of the dead traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. 
And I suppose I should add, Dr. Pelligan went on, it is traditionalism that gives tradition a bad name. Let me say it again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is important. Ritual is important. It, it's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us. It's pedagogical. It teaches us. And so we want to we get it. We want to understand it. We don't want to go through the motions with it. We want, to, we want to see it. We want to celebrate it. And we want to pass that on. Now, thankfully, we have the scriptures, which gives us an authoritative breakdown of what it is that we're doing with regard to communion and many of the things, if not all of the things that we do. So first, it's a ritual. Second, it's a reenactment. And with that, let me take you into Mark chapter 14. Would you please draw your eyes at verse 17? Mark chapter 14, verse 17, we read that when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. They were reclining at the table and eating. Let's stop there for a second. So there you see the meal. There you see a table. There they are seated together. They are partaking in this meal. This is where it all begins with Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus is going to reenact something for his disciples. The Talmudim, as they were known, the disciples. They are reclining at the table. They, they, they are uh, in a culture where tables were on the floor. It's a floor culture. Uh, we, we are more of a couch culture. We're a chair culture. Uh, look at all of you in chairs. You know, there's, I don't see anyone. We got the dog over here. Ah, Marcelo's on the ground. He's, he's uh, doing Mark 14 literally today. But they were a reclining culture. Tables were on the ground. And so they're reclining on one another. They're eating on the floor. They're relaxing. Uh, we are all about the chair life. I like the chair life. I would be highly uncomfortable on the floor, but it's what you get used to. So it's a floor culture. They're having a meal. They're together. They're eating. Pick up in the text in verse 12. It says, on the first day of the unleavened bread. So they're eating unleavened bread. What meal are they partaking in? Verse 12, the Passover lamb was being prepared and sacrificed. And his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So they're having a holiday meal. They're having a Thanksgiving. Their Thanksgiving, of course, is the historic Passover. The Passover uh, goes back to the book of Exodus, and I'll talk about that and remind you of where that, that came from. It's significant for our celebration of communion because communion involves a kind of reenactment going back to the Passover, to Pesah, as the ancient Hebrews would have known it. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, you can read about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. In the Hebrew Bible, you can read about the Feast, the holiday of Pesah, or Passover. Uh, they were celebrated together around the time of Jesus. A representative of one's family would get a lamb, a, a live lamb, and they would take that live lamb to the temple to be slaughtered in sacrifice. And they would bring back uh, some, some of that sacrifice as a, as, a, as, as a part of this meal to feed their family. The lamb itself had significance, a living thing that gives its life to feed another, a living thing that is innocent, that dies in the place of others' guilt. All of these symbols are a part of this great ritual that's being reenacted. You go back to the book of Exodus and you read about the history behind this reenactment of the historical event of, of the Exodus, hence the book we call it the Exodus, when God liberated his people Israel through a series of ten miraculous events. His people were slaves in Egypt, and God, the great abolitionist, liberates them through, through those ten uh, 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 historical miraculous events. The last of those historical miraculous events involved an angel, an angel of death that went through and brought judgment upon the slave masters of the people, and liberated those who were enslaved. There, there, there was a call from God to the people through the prophet Moshe, Moses, that they would sacrifice a lamb, that they would place on the doorpost of their homes uh, some of the blood of the lamb, and the angel of death would pass through and pass over, hence the, the word Pesah. Pesah literally means Passover. It comes from a Hebrew root word, Pesamechet, which means to pass over. And so the angel of death would pass over those who deserve death. All sinners, uh, of course, who have rebelled against the creator who has given them life deserve death. But by the grace of God, the angel would pass over Pesah, and through that uh, incredible act of judgment upon the people for the great sin of slavery, they would be liberated. They would be set free. 
God passed over those homes. And God commanded them to observe an ordinance of Passover once a year where they looked back and they had food together and they remembered. Specifically in the act of that lamb, they remembered the judgment of God. They remembered the liberation of God. So the lamb is eaten in the meal and, and you get together with your family and you, you think about that and you observe that and you have that meal and you talk about that and you, you, you're, you're reenacting it. Remember what God did for our people? Let's get together. Let's have some lamb. Let's think about this. Draw your eyes back at the text. Verse 13, he sent his disciples and he said to them, go into the city. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare us, prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and they came to the city and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Houses in the ancient world were uh, in, in Jerusalem in particular, where the festival was, uh, was to be celebrated. You were supposed to travel back to the Holy Land where the temple was. You were supposed to offer that lamb a sacrifice in the temple. It's a pilgrimage holiday. Everyone comes into town and homes around that time in that town were two-storied. And the second story of the home involves an area for eating. This holiday is supposed to be celebrated with your family as you come into town. And so Jesus has made arrangements for this. It was an intimate feast. Families would come together for this. You would invite your friends. You, you would invite those outside and you tell them to come in. And as you ate the meal, the meal involves symbology in it. So as you're eating, you're able to talk about the meaning of the ritual. God didn't want us chopping off turkeys and not knowing why. He wanted us to understand this. The Passover would be eaten at night, reflecting back on when the angel of death came. Sundown around uh, the time of Jesus would have been around six o'clock, and so they would uh, begin the meal around there. Imagine them on the ground, they're, they're lounging together, they're having Thanksgiving. Oh, that would be kind of the equivalent for us, a meal like Thanksgiving. Picture like a Norman Rockwell painting with the family and a big old turkey. A picture, if you're uh, from my era, I think of that episode on the Cosby Show when uh, Cliff uh, was teaching Theo how to carve the turkey, and it, there's this big anticipation that he's passing on the reins to his son who's going to carve the turkey. So the family is all together. It's, it's special. Verse 22, look at the text. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. So go back to that Norman Rockwell image, or if you recall that episode of The Cosby Show, if you know, Cliff is teaching Theo how to cut things, and he, he, he grabs whatever, a, a turkey wing, and he snaps it and goes, this is my body. You go, that's really awkward. What are you talking about? No, this is Thanksgiving. That's just a turkey. What, what are you getting at? Jesus takes elements from this reenactment of the Passover, and, and, and he says, this is me. Verse 23, and when he had taken the cup and given thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank from it, he said to them, this is me. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus took the bread, uh, the bread of the unleavened feast. It's a bread that is without yeast. It's not a fluffy, nice, delicious, donutty bread, of course, because in the Passover, as God liberated his people Israel, they did not have time for bread to rise with yeast, and so they were instructed to avoid hametz, which is leaven. Leaven is what makes everything delicious and fluffy. They were told to pack your stuff, get ready to go, because we are getting out of here. The Underground Railroad has begun. It is time. It is time to go. There is no time for hametz. There is no time for the leaven to rise. Leaven in Hebrew scripture is uh, used to describe as a symbol of sin. Uh, leaven, of course, is puffy. We think about arrogance and pride, how it puffs us up. And so a little leaven that leavens the whole, of course, inside of Scripture is a principle that talks about the importance of removing that from oneself uh, so, so that it does not spread and take over. The bread is to be unleavened. The unleavened bread is brittle. It breaks. Uh, delicious doughy, chametz, it it doesn't break that way, but unleavened bread, it breaks. Just as Jesus' body would, would be split apart, torn apart, he'd be beaten to a pulp, 
hung on a cross in a horrible act of terrorism by the state and the religious powers of the day. He is showing them what's about to take place. He's, as they're reenacting Pesah, Passover, he's showing them what's about to take place. A new lamb has come who will die in their place for the sins of the people. As you, as you see Jesus in your mind and you're imagining this scene and you see him take that bread and he, and he snaps it and he breaks, you also want to see him not just breaking bread and, and, and being all metaphorical and esoteric, but he's also offering the traditional prayers that would be offered in this meal. I think uh, specifically of the Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Chana Melech HaOlam. The blessing of the table is a, a blessing for the king of the universe, a blessing of the bread that has been given. And so as he blesses the bread and he takes the bread and he breaks it, he's teaching them. As he takes the blessing of the wine, he's teaching them and showing them, hey, look what these things were. We're reenacting those and there's a new move that's about to come. This bread that symbolizes this this historic moment of Israel and rescue, now this is going to serve as a symbol of my body. So on the outline, the first point that I have to unpack this is ritual. The second point is reenactment. It's reenacting Pesah, Passover. Thirdly, it's a reapplication. He's taking the reenactment of Passover and he's reapplying it to himself. This bread, my body, this cup, my blood, a broken body without blood is dead. It is a symbol of death. He says, this is my body. This cup, this cup, the, this, this cup, it's, this is my blood. Blood that is poured out. That's a colloquialism for death. In a culture that has uh, alcoholic libations that are a part of mourning death, uh, we, we continue those today. The, uh, the um, you know, uh, think of Tupac pouring out a little liquor. We pour out alcohol or whatever around uh, the death of someone in certain cultures. You mourn that way. And so pouring out the cup of wine is a picture of death. And Jesus uses that cultural symbol to speak of himself. And he follows it with this blood is the blood of my covenant. It's not just my blood, but the blood belongs to a covenant, which is a promise that is given from God to his people. It's interesting to point out that the Jewish Passover ritual interpreted the cup and the, and, and the blood around that symbol of the lamb. And here Jesus is interpreting that around a new covenant that has come and around his blood that will be poured out. Matthew's gospel, if you're taking notes, write down Matthew 26, 28. He inserts the clause for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, it's not just pouring out blood for blood's sake but it's pouring out blood for forgiveness' sake. The Messiah has come to forgive sinners. Sin is slavery. The Messiah is an abolitionist who delivers. If you have an outline or you're able to look it up uh, later online, you'll see that I, I have two columns. I have a column of the Passover, a Pesah, and then on the other column I have the Last Supper, communion with Jesus, and how Jesus is applying these texts and showing the historic physical enslavement of the people in Israel, in Egypt, and, 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 and paralleling that with the historical enslavement of sin in Adam and how he is the liberator, the savior of all. So this is not about pouring out blood for blood's sake, but forgiveness sake. It is also for covenant's sake. A covenant is a promise. Covenants inside of scripture are ratified by blood, the blood of sacrifice. And so as, as Jesus offers this, Sorry, you guys are catching all kind of wind. As Jesus offers this, and he unpacks this, and he begins talking about blood, in their culture they understand, oh, covenants are ratified by blood. This reenactment, okay, this reapplication is literally being ratified and specifically in his blood. This is sacrificial language of, of body and blood, which in Hebrew culture was all readily understood. That said, the disciples did not understand it. At this point, they're kind of going, what is he talking about? You are ruining this uh, Thanksgiving meal. They, they don't quite get it. Now, later they will get it. Later they will have their eyes opened by Jesus. The very eyes that saw him put to death, the very eyes that saw him serving this meal, the very eyes that would run in fear, confused over what they did not understand, those clouded eyes, those confused hearts, Later, Jesus would come to them, 
post-resurrection, and with air in his lungs once again, with blood pulsing in his heart once again, Jesus would run to them and teach them and say, remember that meal. Remember what I taught you. Remember what the scriptures say. This is what it is all about. He loved them. He forgave them. And he taught them. And he answered their questions. And he dealt with their doubts. And further, he received their worship. And he instructed them, you take these lessons and you pass them on. As I'm talking to you today about this, I'm doing what he did to them and they've passed down to those who passed down to those who passed down to those who passed down all the way to us today the God of Israel the God of Passover is the God of creation the God revealed in Jesus Christ is the only God of all the God who is father son and spirit the father who had sent the son to die in the place of sinners the creation that he made that rebelled against him he responds in grace and mercy, sending not a third party to handle the problem, but stepping into the mess himself in the historic Jesus of Nazareth, who is the eternal son who has taken on flesh. And so while we have a symbol in communion, we know that that symbol reflects something that is quite literal. The eternal son took on flesh and became a man. Jesus moves on, draw your eyes at Mark 14 again in verse 25, and he says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes a vow of abstinence. I won't drink of this again. Uh, you know what it is uh, likely to fast. If you don't know, you should. Just, you know, it's an important part, uh, talking about rituals that we have in the Christian, Christian tradition. Fasting is one of them but when you refrain from something that you otherwise would enjoy. Jesus says, I'm not going to have this anymore. He takes a vow of abstinence, and he says that I will drink again, speaking of the kingdom and speaking of the future, speaking of a, a reality that he wants them to understand. So that takes me to the next point. We've talked about ritual. We've talked about reenactment of Passover. We've talked about reapplication of Passover and the new Passover. And fourthly, let's talk about reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. The historical Jesus of Nazareth offered a kingdom to the people. The people rejected that kingdom, but he taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he told them this kingdom will come, and when that kingdom comes, we will have a table, we will have a banquet, we will have a feast, I will partake in the fruit of the vine. The risen Lord, risen physically in his body, who post-resurrection runs around eating because he has a body that takes in food, will once again return in that same physical body risen from the dead, and he will eat with his people. You can read about the Messianic banquet, as it's called inside of the scripture, in Matthew 8 and Luke 13 and Matthew 5. It's all over the place, these anticipations of these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of communion as an eschatological reality, he says, when we have communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Jesus is talking to them, not just about the reapplication of Passover in himself, not just the reenactment of Passover, but of a reality that is to come. His kingdom will come. This then moves, Mark 14, draw your eyes at the next verse, into a time of song. They begin singing, and they head out to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will go, where Jesus will mourn, where Jesus will be arrested, where Jesus will go to the cross, and he will die. They sing, they pray, they respond. We continue today in singing and responding to communion. Uh, shortly we will take communion. We'll respond just as they did, with song, with prayer, with, with reflecting back on Passover and the things that we're learning, with reflecting on Jesus' reapplication, with reflecting on the reality of what is to come. The table, the table involves the symbols of the, of the bread and of the wine, but another really important symbol inside of the table is the people. Would you turn from Mark chapter 4 and find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll talk about the people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The symbol is not just the bread and the cup, brothers and sisters. The symbol is us. Tables are for families. 
We are a family. We've been made a family by the Father through the Son. And in the Son, we've been adopted as sons by the power, the regenerating power of the Spirit. Look around. This is your family. Single brothers and sisters, often you, when you come by yourself and you might look at other families and sometimes maybe even have feelings of, of kind of being disconnected or whatever, this is your fam we're family. We are genuinely brothers and sisters. And so this is a table that we get to do every Sunday that reminds us not just of the bread and the wine, but, but us together. We've been made a family. It, it's the people. What a powerful symbol that we need right now as a nation while our country is literally ripping itself apart over interpretations of current affairs. People are ripping themselves apart around what they think about COVID or masks or shots. By shots, I mean vaccines, not all the other shooting that's going on in the culture that people are ripping themselves apart over as well. What do you think about that guy who got shot or that gal who got shot? And you think the wrong thing. And so now we're not friends. Conversations about social justice or racial history and more. People are literally ripping themselves apart over one another, canceling one another. Literal biological families are being ripped apart by these things. The powers of our fallen culture want to divide us. Hear me. And they make money doing it. They've monetized it. And sheeple will watch these media outlets and sheeple will be devoted to these media celebrities. They will parrot their anger and their self-righteous behavior to virtue signal to cancel rather than to think critically to speak slowly to stand in solidarity to speak truthfully with grace all the while being devoted to the local community in our case the local church this little cup is not so little to us this little cup is everything to us it's huge it is huge this little cup is the beginning of our week, brothers and sisters. It's central in our worship. It joins us. It unites us. It cries against the divided world and says, no, you are one in this, in what this means. In our broken world, people wonder what will heal us, what will bring us together. I believe it is the meaning of this little cup. I believe this is the remedy right here in this cup. This little cup has the answers to every corruption, every injustice, every false answer, every would-be Messiah that would come to offer a theory to heal our land. This cup exposes all false theories, and this cup calls us to unite. You watch the news, and you, you hear uh, you know, all sorts of things that bring dismay. What's going on with uh, the packing of the courts? What's going on with Cuomo sex scandals? What's going on with the defunding law enforcement? What's going on at the borders? What's going on with these shootings? What, what does all of this mean? I'll tell you what it means. Sin is pervasive. Sin cuts through all men because all have sinned. And so as we watch the news and we hear of racism and division and bloodthirst and murder and we see politicians going to and fro and, and dividing over all of this, we are reminded, brothers and sisters, as we gather here today, we have the answer to all of these things. Behold the one who has come, who gave his life as a ransom for many to liberate us from the power of sin and has given us this little cup to remind us of the great things that he has done. This ritual, moving along, we have looked at the ritual, we have looked at it as a reenactment, a reapplication the reality of the kingdom that is to come, and now a remembrance. I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Quickly, let me draw your attention to verse 23. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and he had given thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ritual, reenactment, reapplication, reality. Now, remembrance. See how, see how the meal, see how this little cup, see how this little piece of bread is spoken of as a memorial. This is something we do to remember Jesus. It's not magical. It's not magical. It's a memorial. It's, it's not, you know, there's no hocus pocus going on. It's, it's a memorial. 
And some traditions, uh, we, we won't, uh, I won't get sidetracked, but in some traditions they talk about transubstantiation and the bread turning into Jesus' body quite literally. You say, no, 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 he told them to do this as a memorial. This is something to remember. And as you are remembering Jesus, as you are remembering the eternal son who took on flesh in that little piece of bread, and that piece of bread reminds you of the liberation of Israel from in the Exodus and the symbology of leaven and that we ought to purify ourselves. As you are remembering and reflecting on Jesus, another R, let me give you a, a final R, is this meal is a time of re-examination. We are called to re-examine ourselves. We are called to come and examine not just our personal lives, but also to examine our corporate life because communion Literally, the word communion is a participation together. And so it's a time for us as we gather as a community to re-examine our lives and how we're doing. It's easy to look at the news. It's easy to look at Cuomo and sex scandals or whatever and go, wow, what a dirty guy. Uh, but we also need to know that the law of God turns against us and exposes us. As the Lord Jesus taught his disciples, hey, look, you know, adultery, yeah, but don't think that just because you haven't cheated on your spouse, you're not guilty of adultery. You have lust in your heart. You're not better simply because you haven't acted on it. Turn inward and see that the sin rages within you as well, and you need a liberator. We stand in no position over others. It's but by the grace of God. And so we examine our hearts and we say, Oh Lord, cleanse me for I am dirty. Oh Lord, thank you for this symbol that reminds me you have cleansed me and you've done so by your blood. You have set me free and you did so with the breaking of your body. And we look around as well and we think not just of, of inwardly our sin, but relationally our sin. How am I treating others? How am I taking care of others? Do I give others the benefit of doubt? Do I extend forgiveness? Or do I personalize things and gossip? Do, do, I, do, I, do I attend and give myself to the church, to, to giving of myself in my time and giving of myself with my resources to make sure that others in the community are actually cared for? One of the sad things in 2020, really 2019 through 2021, 2020 just right there in the middle, is seeing how the cancel culture has even permeated the, the church and seeing how the divisiveness of the world has permeated the church. The tribalism, the cold-heartedness, uh the lack of devotion, the unsubmissiveness, the peacelessness, and all the rest. The ability to unplug and disengage and disappear, even in the context of the church. The worldliness that's out there and how it can come into communities of, of God, churches, and so communion, every week when we gather, it's a time for us. Yes, we remember what Jesus has done, but we re-examine how, how am I doing in the way that I'm treating others, specifically Christ's church. Draw your eyes back at the text and see that what I'm saying is in the text. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writing about how this was passed on. He wasn't one of the 12. This was passed on as we continue passing it on today and Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. There must be factions among you. Those who, who, who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not for the eating of the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one's hungry and another's drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Okay, in verses 23 through 26, we have a teaching on the Lord's Supper. And then what comes right after that is, is the Apostle Paul pressing into them around these divisions. Right after teaching them about communion, Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man, verse 28, must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. Asleep here is a euphemism for death. 
Death was coming upon them, dysfunction and darkness as a result of their sin. What is the unworthy manner that he speaks of? I love the way New Testament scholar Dr. Craig Keener explains it. I'll quote him. He writes, eating in an unworthy manner refers to the status conscious eating that is dividing the church. By rejecting other members of Christ's body, the church, they were rejecting the saving gift of his body represented by the bread. Apparently, uh, the, the richer folks in the community were ostracizing the poorer folks in the community. They, they were eating, and uh, by the time uh, the poorer folks in the community were coming to church, there was nothing left for them. And so Paul punks them, and he makes the little passing comment about, don't you guys have food to eat in your houses? Obviously you do. Because communion in the first century world, in particular in the poverty around Rome, uh, it was, their cups were a little bigger. Their bread was a little more. It was a part of making sure that people got their bread and butter, not just spiritually, in terms of the reapplication, reenactment, reality, reexamination, but it also served the practical purpose of making sure that people got something in their bellies because poverty was high in Rome. And so the church partook of these elements to make sure that people were getting some bread and butter, some basic sustenance, but as well that they were being fed spiritually as they were being taught of the Christ. Verse 31, draw your eyes at the text. If we are judged ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining manners I will arrange when I come. The Apostle Paul is burdened that they will understand this. He is, he is devastated to hear of the brokenness that has come into the community. He's giving revelation to them concerning God's judgment so that they'll know that, hey, the, those who are asleep, that's not coincidental. You know, that, that wasn't uh, the Rona in Rome. That, that was God's judgment upon you guys. Paul gives them revelation of the judgment. Paul, Paul clowns them, literally, like, hey, if anyone's hungry, you know, uh, you should just eat at your house. Come on, you guys, get it together. Make sure that everyone has their bellies full. Make sure that not food shortages or famines would come into the way of Christ's church. Care for one another. This is something that we do in this church. We have a fund called the Congregational Care Fund, and we want to make sure that, that, that people are cared for. If you're behind, if you need help. We have a food ministry right now. I see Josiah down there. Shout out to Josiah. They're, they're boxing groceries over there as I speak. We want to make sure that, that people have bread and butter in their bellies. We want to make sure that you have resources as a church. We want to make sure that you understand, though, the sacredness of this cup. Again, it's not just a symbol of the bread, Christ's body, the Jews, Christ's blood, but it's the symbol of us. He died on a cross for us to make us us. Now, in talking about reexamination, it is important for me to emphasize something. It's important for me to emphasize uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that, that Christ died for us while we were sinners. If you start, if you start uh, examining yourself and you start thinking about your relationships, even now as I've been preaching, hopefully some things are surfacing, and you're going, I've hurt people. Maybe even there's people here who you've hurt. And, and, and if you're tentative to that, and, and you're tentative to your own heart, and you go, there's stuff in there that's not right. I'm saying this right now because what I don't want you to do is here, examine yourselves, and then it's time for community. You go, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this cup. I'm not worthy of this cup. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have this. No, no, no. This is for you. As you examine, you go, there's people I've hurt. There's people I need to say sorry to. There's forgiveness I need to seek. There's stuff in here that's not right. This is for you. Take that examination and run to Jesus with it. You are not the way you should be. The law of God condemns us all. If all of us were aware and we stopped blame shifting and we stopped making excuses, we would see, man, there's stuff in here that's not right. And it will always be that way until the Lord comes. And that's what this cup does. It stirs in us that point about reality. He's coming back. 
And we're saying, Lord, we need you. We need what you did on the cross in the past when you died as a sacrifice for us. You died in our place. You gave yourself for us. And we need what's coming in the future when you will fully heal everything inside of us. And our relationships will be made the way that they're supposed to be. Our hearts will be made the way that they're supposed to be. This cup, this meal is about the past of what God did for Israel in Passover, the reapplication of that and what God did in the Passover lamb, the eternal son. And it's a, it's a future foretaste of what is to come, reminding us that we're not trapped waiting for Jesus to come back. There is power in the blood, brothers and sisters. There is power by the Spirit to heal, to forgive, to, to, to mend the broken, to bring us together. I labor on this point of examination because, one, it is biblical, and two, I don't want anyone to hear to not drink the cup today. I've met believers who sometimes think they're unworthy to partake because of certain sin in their life, and the, the reality is none of us are worthy. Let me remind you, Jesus ate with sinners. Let me remind you that Jesus served Judas at the table. But yes, examine but above all, come today and enjoy the cup. It would be like a doctor saying to a sick person, I need you to get well before you come and see me. It would be like a loan officer saying to a poor person, you need a loan? Uh, well, go get some money and uh, th you know, then I'll, I'll help you out. It would be like a cook saying to someone who is hungry, are you starving? Well, gain some weight and then I'll give you a meal. That's not the way that this works. The Lord's table is the place for the person struggling with sin. The Lord's table is the place for those of you who are wrestling with temptation. The Lord's table is for those of us who are caught up in carnality. It, here, here in the cup, here in the bread, the Lord's saying to you, you need me. I'm here for you. I love you. I have given you this ritual so that every week you begin your week being reminded of what I have done for you. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me into the life of the everlasting. The cup reminds us of the life of the everlasting one who has come. This meal is about Jesus. This meal is about the gospel. It pictures that invisible reality. As baptism is an is a external physical symbol, someone being washed in water, of an invisible reality, being washed by the spirit of our sin, so too this is an external symbol of an invisible reality. So take the top of the cup. Take the unleavened, brittle, pathetic, small piece of unsavory bread <laughs> the scriptures remind us that god uses the weak to shame the strong that god uses the foolish to to shame the wise that god uses a little untasty symbol to remind us right this this is for the healing of the nations can you imagine how people would freak out if you were on CNN or Fox News or whatever and they were interviewing someone and they're like, so what will solve all the problems? And they lifted up a little communion cracker and said, right here, this is it. This is the remedy to COVID. This is the remedy to uh, the uh, you know, politicians and the powers and the corruptions. This right here, this will heal all racism. This will, this will heal everything. They go, what are you talking about? Say, well, let, let me tell you about the reapplication, the reenactment, the reality. I got a whole sermon outline with ours all for you. It's all right here. The one who has come for us. The one who will save us. The one who will set us free. Put it in your mouth as it breaks in your mouth. Now, this doesn't taste so great. Be reminded of what he did for us. The bitterness of what he has done. The brokenness that he took upon himself. You know what? You know what probably tasted really good, unlike unleavened bread. What probably tasted really good was the tragic meal that we read about in the book of Genesis. That piece of fruit that our father and mother ate. What a tragic meal that was when they rebelled against God. 
And they were told that in so doing, they, they would obtain favor. They would obtain all things. They would obtain knowledge. What a dumb meal. What a horrible meal. Moment on the lips, lifetime on the hips, right? <laughs> We've all been born into sin ever since that meal. And then we think of God's promise to Abram that came. And the same book that tells us about that tragic meal. And we, we, we think about the sacrifice of the animal that Abram did. And we think about that meal. And we think about the meal of the Passover that we studied today. And we think about the, the meal of Jesus when he gives his life for us. And we think about that communion. And we open our cups. And these don't taste good. These little, these little cups, they don't taste good. I don't know who the manufacturer is, but it's not Capri Sun. But that's the point. It's not supposed to. A first century wine that would have been used in the meal, there's a, a bitterness, a dryness to it. You drink it, you go, ugh. It reminds you of death, of, of, of the dryness, of the bitterness, of, of death. So we drink the cup and we look back on what he has done and we look forward to what is to come, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Our Lord currently is in a state of abstinence with regard to the cup and he says, one day I'll come and we'll drink together. And I believe that cup will taste good. But this one, not so good because it reminds us of the not so good that was done in our place, of the death that we deserve. So let us drink. having a meal, and thinking about Jesus, you should be reminded of how the Lord loved to eat with his church. Think about Zacchaeus in that tree. What did the Lord say to him in Luke 19, 5? Come on down, Zacchaeus, because I'm coming over to eat with you in Luke 19, 5. Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, goes to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee in John 21, 12, and he says, hey, you guys, come over here. Let's dine together. Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he eats with them. On the road to Emmaus, he breaks bread with his disciples. In Revelation 3, we, we read the words of affirmation that are written to the church of Laodicea. On the lips of Jesus, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together. Jesus continues to feast with his church spiritually by the Spirit, reminding us of this. And that's why we do what we do every week in this little cup. If familiarity has uh, bred contempt and you've taken the cup for granted, I pray that as a result of today's study, it'll just serve anew in you as you go, I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that teaches me th these things and that, and that when I come on Sunday is going to give me the essentials of what I need to hear of the triune God and what he has done to redeem us, to save us, and explain these rituals that we have so that we, would, we wouldn't go through it mindlessly. Going back to the illustration of the newly married uh, spouse chopping off the front of a turkey, that we wouldn't cut anything out of it, but we would get it all and go, thank you, God, you've taught us well in your word, and may we continue to pass this on so that the generations to come, while we await his coming, will enjoy these very things and treasure them in their hearts. Let's respond now in song as we sing praise to him, and then we'll close with a word of prayer. Before we sing, let's pray and enter into a time of song. Father, I thank you. I thank you for, Lord, your love for us, that you have not left us in the dark to figure out what these things mean, and more importantly, who you are. You have revealed yourself to us by the Spirit in your Son. And we thank you for this uh, great meal, the elements of this historic meal that you've given to teach us about yourself. And Lord, I pray that this day you will use this memorial to supernaturally draw us together, to draw husbands and wives close to one another, to draw uh, children and their parents close to one another, neighbors close to one another, co-workers close to one another, to heal any uh, relational brokenness that we experience in our community, Lord, to heal our hearts, 
for we are sheep that are prone to wander, and we need you, almighty shepherd, to draw us to yourself. We need you, almighty shepherd, to see the true war that is going on in the culture, a war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, a war between sinful men and a holy God. And we thank you, O God, that by your son, you rescued us from this war. We were prisoners in this war, soldiers in this war, raging against you, and you saw fit to rescue us and make us sons and daughters of you. As we enter into a, a final time of song, Lord, receive these songs of worship, we pray. For you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.